0: Hello, and welcome again to another locked down edition of Lost in Science. We are still locked in science, broadcasting from the comfort of our own homes rather than the studios of 3CR. Uh, my name's Stu, and with me on the show, as always, I have Chris. Hello. And Claire. Hello. Uh, and Chris, what have you got for us on the show this week? Well, people may have missed it, but the annual Pint
1: of Science event went virtual this year. Uh, It was not in pubs as it normally is. It was streamed across the internet. Um, For those who missed it, we are, over the next couple of weeks, going to be catching up with some of the speakers from Pint of Science. And this week's show, I am talking to Kyla Adams, who is a theoretical quantum physicist from the University of Melbourne and she is talking about some bizarre quantum physics as it relates to really cold superfluid liquids uh, and the strange things that they do.
2: I imagine it would have been a pretty great talk between two quantum physicists, is that right? Yeah.
1: Look, it was a bit of fun. Yeah? It was a bit of fun. I think. Look, I think we have talked about superfluids before on the show. Um, but look, it's not my area of expertise, so it was, uh, it was good to, to speak to, to someone who, who knows something that I can ask some in-depth questions. Yeah.
0: Still, still closer to your area of expertise than either of ours, <laughs> I have, have to say. There.
1: Yeah, close enough. And, you know, I felt that like quantum liquids for like a, an event called Pint of Science, quantum liquids did seem somehow appropriate. So, you know, doing my bit to keep up with the theme there.
0: Yeah, well, that's yeah. It, it does link in somewhat. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well,
2: we are locked in science, and we're locked in on the lands of the Kulin Nation, um, and it is uh, it is National Reconciliation Week this week. Um, the theme is "In This Together," which is probably more fitting. Uh, than they were expecting when they probably made that theme a little while ago. Um, I've heard that
1: phrase a lot lately. In this
2: together, exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so we have a special recording this week. It is a story of water science and traditional knowledge. And um, it is brought to us by a Kamilaroi man and water scientist, Bradley Mogridge. So the... The uh, talk was actually recorded in front of a packed house in Melbourne back in February, so pre-coronavirus days, and was part of a Bush Heritage series. So um, their series was called Bush Nights, and this is Stories from the Water. Um, So, yeah, um, Bradley... Bradley gives us some insights into his story and then a whole lot about um, his research into water science and geomorphology and um, some really interesting and evocative um, pictures emerge from from the groundwater and and what water underground looks like in sort of northwestern New South Wales. So definitely stay tuned for that one.
1: listening to Lost in Science, my name is Chris, and my guest today is quantum physicist Kyla Adams. Kyla is a master's student at the University of Melbourne, and she's one of the speakers of this year's virtual pint of science, and she's with us today to tell us about the bizarre properties of quantum liquids. Kyla, welcome to Lost in Science.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Now, regular listeners may know that I've got a bit of a physics background myself, but I don't know much about quantum liquids, so I've got a lot to learn from you. But um, I think we should start with the basics. How would you explain what quantum physics is?
3: Um, So quantum physics is essentially the study of the very small. Uh, So small that just the normal rules no longer apply, and particles start to behave in ways that go against our normal, everyday scale expectations the small scale the particles and atoms can be thought of a probability or a smear rather than just a fixed point so it's like a little fuzzy ball of probability is now your atom and because of this fuzziness weird things can happen like the quantum tunneling or um, quantum liquids which is what i'm looking at
1: great so why is it we call it quantum
3: yeah so call them quantum because you can get um properties like energy or momentum they can be quantized put into these set values so if that could happen in our everyday world you could start with a, sing- a single apple take a bite and then suddenly be left with half an apple or none at all so an apple would then be quantized
1: oh okay so it's like in the case the half apple is is the quantum Yeah. so that's right um all right so how do we get that though to to quantum liquids
3: so there's a little bit of a step so we Basically put these atoms, these balls of fuzz, into a um, super cool refrigerator, I guess. Drop them all the way down to very close to zero, which is very hard to do. But then as you cool them down, these individual smears and fuzzes start to overlap. So you can start with these two separate fuzzy balls. Then as you decrease the temperature, their fuzziness starts to overlap more and more. And so you can't tell them apart. It's just one big fuzz ball. And you start to get this quantum liquid, this single object.
1: I suppose it's quite different to the way we normally think of liquids because like a liquid looks like it's a a single uniform mass I mm. suppose but we know that it's made up of little tiny atoms bouncing around and bouncing off each other. Yep. So is what you're doing it's making it back into that single mass is that what's happening there?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much what's happening. So the atoms, they're all they're all still kind of there, but you can't distinguish them anymore. To be like if all your water molecules just overlapped and you just had one blob of water, but it was the one molecule.
1: Okay. It's,
3: it's very weird to try and think about. Well,
1: I guess that's why people like you need to study it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how cold are we talking here when you're saying cold?
3: So very close to absolute zero. So a lot of these liquids are formed at Kelvin temperatures, which is 0.0090 Kelvin, which in Celsius, everyday temperatures, is minus 273, so way below the freezing point of water.
1: Is liquid helium, because that's one of the ones that I've heard about as a weird kind of liquid that you get at really cold temperatures, so does that count as one of these quantum liquids or are you going colder than that?
3: Yeah, so it counts as one of the quantum liquids so it was one of the first ones that they were actually able to make in a lab so helium turns into this superfluid at about 2.7 kelvin okay close to zero but not quite as close as some of these other ones
1: right and so what are some of the weird properties that you get with quantum liquids
3: one of the weird properties that i look at is what happens when you rotate them when you start to spin it so overall these quantum fluids can't be rotated if you try to stir it like you would stir your coffee and you get that whirlpool. With these liquids, instead of one whirlpool, you get, well, sorry, to start with, you do get one, but it goes in the opposite direction to what you would expect.
1: How does that, so you, hang on, when you're stirring the liquid, you, are you stirring it by putting a spoon in or are you turning the cup around, so to speak?
3: Um, more like turning the cup around. Okay. Yeah. And so yes, you turn something. the cup
1: and then the liquid rotates in the opposite direction, and so what happens?
3: Yes. In a, yeah, in a sense, that is what happens, which is completely counterintuitive. But again, it's one of those weird quantum properties. And the reason it does that is because of a whole bunch of um, fluid dynamics. So the maths of how these wa- the water behaves, well, sorry, how liquid behaves, not quite water. So you look at the velocity of these sort of atoms and you can figure out this rotational property and just a lot of hydrodynamics, so that fluid math.
1: So it's, it's a similar kind of, I suppose, maths to describe what happens to a normal liquid, but it just yeah, behaves differently under these quantum conditions. Is yes. that right? Yep. Okay, so we, if we turn it, we get one whirlpool going in the opposite direction. What happens when we turn it mm-hmm. faster?
3: Yeah, so again, something weird happens. So if you stir your coffee faster, that whirlpool will get bigger. But if you stir your quantum liquid, because these whirlpools have to be quantized, instead of getting a bigger one, you just get more of them. So you'll have two whirlpools instead of a big one, or three or four, depending on how much you stir it.
1: That is very strange, but I guess it makes mm-hmm. sense from this this kind of quantum concept that you were talking about. These things are they have they been seen in the laboratory? This kind of weird behavior.
3: Yeah, yeah. So they've been able to see these water seas. The first one was less than 30 years ago i think Mm -hmm. the first one the first vortices were found because we weren't able to make these superfluids in a lab until the 90s so the nobel prize in 1996 was awarded for creating this superfluid helium like we were talking about before earlier so it's still a fairly new field of physics especially compared to some of the other fields that are out there
1: um and what do you what are you doing with your particular research on this
3: um so my research is looking at spinning these liquids in different containers so instead of having it just sort of like in a cup i'm theoretically so just using a computer to put these liquids into a ring and then when you put them in this ring with certain conditions you can get them to start rotating on their own we think so without rotating the container
1: what they will just just start rotating
3: yeah so you can so you change an external condition so You can have these superfluids be magnetic, so they interact with the magnetic field. And if you increase that external magnetic field, they could start to rotate. Not because you're making it spin, but just because it's, we say, energetically favourable. So they want to move because that's the laziest spot for them to be in.
1: I mean, this is is kind of totally bizarre and counterintuitive, but would this be able to make some sort of motor or... I don't know. I'm just thinking it sounds like a bit like a superconductor, but the whole thing is moving, not just electric charges. And
3: Yeah, it is It is very strange. And I think they might have been able to make the torus of superfluids in a lab, but I don't think they don't last for very long. Okay. Um, it could be, I think, probably less than a second, potentially. So at the moment, there's not really any application. Okay. But I sort of see this field as one of physics where we'll look at it and then see where it takes us. It might be have. We might have one weird spin-off of it later okay. on. yeah.
1: But it is, although it sounds weird, it is, uh, from what you're saying, it sounds like it is consistent with the laws of physics that we know. They're just behaving in an unexpected way. So, like, it's rotating, but you're not getting, say, energy for free, are you, yeah. out of this?
3: Yeah, so it's weird to sort of how we experience everyday life, but in terms of, like, quantum physics and, I guess, the fundamental... Uh, building blocks of physics it makes sense
1: and that's why it's not that weird for things to be rotating at those tiny scales i mean we know that for instance electrons spin and orbit around atoms and this sort of stuff mm. and they keep moving they don't stop moving
3: yeah yeah essentially the same sort of thing so it's just these atoms moving about in a certain particular way are there
1: like applications for these that, that um people are thinking about or that in your wildest dreams in the future we might be able to see
3: i'm not sure i think potentially in some sort of medical physics because we do use like super cooled helium in um, some imaging devices we do use like these optical liquids in a couple of different situations um potentially in like cooling down rockets for example because they have to be cool to then deal with the high temperatures so i think that could be a potential application but i think it's very open still There's so many different ways it could potentially go
1: yeah and are these things found anywhere else in the universe apart from in our laboratories
3: um so superfluids in general are thought to exist in neutron stars as well so neutron stars are these really dense stars so they're about 15 kilometers in diameter but like super heavy so the weight of a few diff- couple of suns inside this so a teaspoon of this neutron star could be a thousand tons i think so very very heavy and because they're so dense the interior of them is thought to be a superfluid because of different pressure properties and stuff like that it's they're hot but they can be cool in the interior okay again another one of those weird contradictions um but yeah so they're thought to exist in outer space just naturally
1: Uh, So I suppose then understanding the properties of these superfluids can help us understand what's happening inside neutron stars.
3: Yeah, so some people um, investigate some observations of neutron stars that we see. So we see some weird, again, some weird things coming from them that could be a result of the superfluid. And then if we can match the observations to the superfluid theory, it could then improve our understanding of superfluids through that roundabout way
1: excellent um so for yourself and is it these weird properties that you like about superfluids? like what is it that that you think is the most uh exciting thing or that you think people need to know
3: i think the most exciting thing is the vortices i quite like them so every time i look at my coffee in the morning and stir it i think of these vortices like that sort of everyday link i guess like the macro scales what we see every day can be replicated at this super tiny scale
1: fantastic well look thank you very much kyla for for sharing your work with us and sharing a bit about the um the mysteries and magic of quantum liquids
3: thank you it's been great that
1: was quantum physicist kyla adams
0: across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science
2: Brad is a Camillaroy man from northwestern New South Wales. Um, he's an environmental scientist and a hydrogeologist, which is groundwater, I suppose. Um, and he's just about to complete his PhD at the University of Canberra. Um, and Brad's research is looking into how. Um, traditional water management practices, and science can work together with formalised Western science to help us better manage Australia's water resources, Um, and also how we can create more opportunities for Aboriginal people to be involved in decisions around the control and use of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Brad, if you want to come onto the stage, that'd be great.
4: Yama everyone. First of all acknowledge country Wurundjeri mob, uh, I acknowledge their country and they are custodians of a great river and um, I thank them and their elders for allowing me to be here and acknowledge Brother Boy here and um, any other Indigenous people in the room. I wasn't really sure, I was going to do off-the-cuff stuff tonight, so I suppose thinking about water stories, water is... Uh, a key part of what I do and why I'm sort of standing here as well. I started my journey early, about 65,000 years ago, um, when I started engaging with water. In the last 40 years, (laughs) we'll say, um, I I had a real interest in science. So science was a pathway for me. Um, I was told I'd never be good at science and I shouldn't do it and I probably shouldn't do maths either. I had to do maths in the garden, we called it. It was basic maths in year 11 and 12. And i actually got into a Bachelor of Science uh, on my own accord and started doing geology. I was ducks of geology at my school. I also had a real interest in the water that that was under our feet. And um, I really connected with groundwater, you know, to my mobs, uh, where we're northwest New South Wales, up on the border, towards the border rivers between New South Wales and Queensland inland. My um, family's uh, mum was born in Narrabri and um, Nan was in Toomala. That's a, probably a name some people might have heard um, but you know we're right at the base of the Great Artesian Basin so there's a lot of springs in our country. There's a lot of recharge and discharge areas as well so connecting with these places was it was a no-brainer for me but connecting with the science was was a way I thought um, I thought I could um explore that a bit more did a, a master's in, in groundwater but my undergrad well actually straight out of scholar did geology and uh, I did industrial experience and I found myself in the great sandy desert looking for uranium in a national park and so that didn 't sit too well I loved learning about the earth I loved learning about how I could I could see country differently and I could see the formations and I think that was that was really exciting and then sort of You know, a bit later on I'll talk about some of the stuff that sort of popped up and now about sort of geologic history as well and and traditional knowledge. Then I I switched over to environmental science, which was an obvious transition for myself. And I was doing an assignment. I was creating um, a guide for bush regen teams to how to identify Aboriginal sites in sandstone country in Sydney. I'd done a lot of engagement around that area, but around the Barara Creek um, that flows into the Hawkesbury River, and I'm walking with the Hornsby Shire Council Aboriginal liaison officer who was Chinese, and we're walking along, and I notice a lot of these small engravings of fish and things like that, like sandstone country in Sydney. Is, there's a lot of beautiful sandstone uh, engravings, and, and we got to this point, there was a fresh-flowing stream right behind me, and there was a small overhang with some um, ochre art in it and hand stencils and, and like, as I said, the the area had um, like fish and things like that. So I, I said to the lad, I said, look, man, I don't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. And he said, oh, it's a women's site. I said, all right, let's get out of here. So I suppose that sort of feeling, I went, there's, there's something there that's telling me to get out of here. You know, so it was the, the women saying, hey, boy, move on. But um, then I, I moved into my, my groundwater studies and I had these three water holes in my head and I was thinking, what are they? And I thought, look, I'm going to paint it, so I painted it, and I was out up on country um, at a place called Mungandai, which is sort of the the start of the oh, the Barwon Darling River and the end of the McIntyre. It's still on my country, and I was talking to one of the old men there, who was he was a cousin, and, and I was telling him about these three waterholes that I'd painted. He said, "Boy, I'm going to take you there." So I'd never been to these places, and like I think you were saying, the hairs on the back of your neck, you know, that was happening to me, and. There was nothing standing up on the top of my head but the, the back of my neck was, was warm and fuzzy. Knowing these places were talking to me or singing to me, you know, and I suppose that, that was really cool. I probably got 15 minutes of fame out of my groundwater thesis so it was Aboriginal people and groundwater. So I'd just come off doing hydrogeophysics, hydrogeochemistry, and my supervisors, I was going to do urban salinity because that was starting to rear its head in Western Sydney where I was then living and um, he said, oh you're you know, you're Aboriginal? I said, yeah, yeah. He was in my sister's pizza shop at Gerringong and I had a painting in her pizza shop that she wanted just for the wall and um, he sort of said, why don't you do Aboriginal people on water? And I said, I didn't know I could. And he goes, if you mention the word groundwater, I'll mark it. And I thought, you know, that sort of, that gave me the, the, a real buzz, you know, and then I got to start looking at how Aboriginal people engaged in water and their knowledge, you know, we are the driest inhabitant cotton on earth. And you move away from like the, the coastal zones or the southeast, the riverine country, and it's going to be groundwater. If you don't know where water is and you don't know how to refine that water, you're not going to last long. So those stories are really connected with, and some of those stories were really, uh, I suppose, inspiring. I, I remember I was in um, I was on a national committee, water committee, giving advice to the National Water Commission, and um, we're in Catherine River, uh, in Northern Territory. And we were with an old man there, Bill Harney. He's a brilliant man. And he was talking about, we had actually had the Northern Territory government with us as well. And he was talking about this story, you know, that there's all these different water holes on his country. You know, there's yellow water, there's black water, there's white water. And he said, they're all, you know, he said, they're all related to, to the soils and the geology. So that everything, he said, the fish, and they all have different medicinal purposes. But he said, they're all connected. And the then Northern Territory had a man called the, the water controller. I keep thinking of the fat controller. But um, the water controller, so he controlled the water in the Northern Territory for the government. And um, he's standing there nodding, nodding away. And um, it was, he got to the say that, you know, they're all connected. So the Northern Territory government said, you're dreaming, old man, even though they're all dreaming stories. So the Northern Territory government spent hundreds of thousands of dollars drilling. Guess what? They're all connected. So those dreaming stories that they had, he had of all these places, told him that they're all connected, even though you know they're all different sort of soils and geology and things like that. But underneath, you know, they'll have stories about the, you know, so let's say the rainbow serpent, but they're all connected, and that's the same in Sydney. Um, while I was researching my my thesis, um, Gurungatch and Mirrigan is a story that survived you know, colonisation, which is very close to the Sydney Basin, so the Cox's River and Wallandilly River. It's a story of a... I think it was a... I can't remember what it was, but, it, you know, it, was, it created the Janolan Caves. You know, those sort of stories are, are pretty rare to survive. And that old man that told it was in the bottom of Borragang Valley where the Warragamba Dam is today. You know, Barragang Valley is, is now flooded, but he was on the mission and he told that story back in the... I think it was the mid-1800s. Um, but even thinking about my country as well, we have a, a story, and I think that was one of my exciting bits of connecting with water as well. So we have a place called Boobra Lagoon. It's an old, you know, in geomorphology terms, it's an old river path but it's of, of the McIntyre. But what it is is a place where uh, a large snake-type creature with a crocodile head, so it's not a, not a nice beast, but it used to uh, call the Guttia, and it used to terrorise the mob up there and, um, you know, by taking people and taking animals. So one of the warriors said, look, I've had enough of this. So he got his, got his spears and um, off he went, threw a few spears at the Guttia and obviously the Guttia wasn't too happy and he chased him all the way through our country and hence that's the creation of Booba Lagoon. So it's about 57 K's long but it... Looks exactly like a snake has just carved its way through the landscape. The warrior got to the to this bumble tree, which is one of our um, fruit trees, and uh, which is the the mother-in-law, and the Gudia would not come any closer. So mother laws can be good for some things. Shout out to my mother-in-law; she's lovely. But they, um, you know, that sort of story is there, and that and that still lives in that lagoon today. And you know, there are still stories that, you know, kids have disappeared, sheep just disappear, cows just disappear, and I suppose our mob fought really hard because originally that was a water skiing park. It was perfect for water skiing. And so to get we couldn't use state legislation. It took an act of federal parliament to actually get the water skiers off our lagoon, and they got their own lagoon in in town in Gundawindi, but we got our lake back, and I suppose there's a lot of our old people there. There's a lot of um, scarred and carved trees... And I think that's, that's, you know, we say it's probably the, well, it's our most significant site, you know, it's part of initiation for men as well. Um, but, there, you know, there are women's places as well around the lagoon, but it's, it's one of those places that's super, super important. Oh, I, I was chairing a session at the Australasian Groundwater Conference just, just late last year, and I had an Indigenous session, and we had some women rangers come, and we had uh, a drilling team that was working with them talking about um, their country and they were from the Great Sandy Desert and they were talking about this place and they were about to drill looking for water and this old man said, oh, if you drill over there, you'll you find an old river, ancient river. And so when they drilled there, they found a paleo channel, so which is a, an ancient river that's probably 10,000 years old and, you know, this old man just said casually, yeah, that's an old river. So he knew that sort of stuff and, you know, that's that sort of knowledge, you know, where we're part of a, an old knowledge system that is, I believe, is science uh, because it is generations and generations of observation, of knowing your country, knowing every bit of every plant, every animal and what their role is, and I suppose you're, you're testing that environment to make sure that you obviously respect that environment but also you survive. And I think that's, that's the exciting bit about traditional knowledge is that it can actually add to science, and I think that's what I'm trying to do for water, is that we don't we don't value water the way we should. At the moment, when you think about the Murray-Darling Basin, water is a commodity. So we've separated land and water, and if Aboriginal people want water, they've got to go to the market and buy it. So if they, they want to go buy water in the Namoi at the moment, in northern New South Wales, $1,000 a megalitre. So if if they, in, that's in dry times, but in wet times, it's about $80 a megalitre. So you can sort of see if you've got water, you've got some serious power. That's so why it's, it's so political. And I suppose the other thing was when I look at the way we manage water, I didn't see Aboriginal voices in water. Just weren't there. You know, as I said, we're the oldest living culture on the driest inhabited continent, but we don't have a say in water. And also I got tired of hearing other people tell our water stories. I wanted to be, you know, take these microphones for instance and and tell our stories our way. And I think that's the bit that I'm trying to inspire, you know, my kids but, you know, a a generation to try and take that opportunity um, and, and take hold of those microphones and tell our stories.
0: Well, that is all we have time for on this week's edition of Locked In Science. Uh, thank you to Kyler Adams for talking to Chris about the super qualities of superfluids and their quantum weirdness. And thanks also to Bradley Moggridge for sharing his talk with us on water science as well. So lots of fluids going on this week. Locked in Science is usually recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but as we are going through our current situation, we are recording remotely from our own homes. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us on Gmail. We are lostinsight at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and we're on Facebook and we are broadcast across the the country on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation thank you for joining us this week and please do join us again next week when claire chris and Stu get
2: locked Locked in in science